Our glory to God. We praise our King of Kings, one of ours, our Savior, the one who came to seek and save that which was lost. We pray, Lord, your word go forth now. The power of your spirit, Lord. Bless our pastor and bless your people. May you be pleased. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, please. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, verse 8 says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone, shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And Father, we thank you that the heavens declared the glory of God, and we declare your glory too. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. We know, Father, that's your heart. It's your heart to bring us your peace, the peace that passes understanding. And even though in this world we shall find tribulation, but Jesus, you said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So meet with us now, God. Teach us. Help us to understand your will, your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Galatians, and we're going to be in chapter 4 and looking at verses 4 through 7, and the title of today's message is, We Call Him Abba. We Call Him Abba. So today, we celebrate Christmas. Of course, as you know, it's the birth, celebrate the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, which means God became flesh, born as a baby, come from heaven, and that's what we celebrate. John chapter 1, verse 14 said, And the Word, speaking of Jesus, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace in truth. The Word made flesh. And aren't you so thankful that He dwells among us? That's our God that loves us. But as our culture, you know, especially today, and I think increasingly as time goes on, our culture becomes, and I think you'd agree with me, that our culture becomes more and more secular. And the true meaning of Christmas, which is the incarnation of Jesus, it's become a mystery to the ever-growing part of our population in our society. And you see it everywhere nowadays, and it's very, very evident in the stores we shop in. We see it there. We, we see it on television, various media platforms. Uh, it, we find changes in the schools and school systems and administrations and Sadly, and also in homes, as families buy into the commercialization of Christmas and, and leave Christ out of it, it becomes so much about snowmen and Santa and reindeer and all the other things that, 
that people focus in on. But the true meaning has continued to be covered, secularized, and repressed. Recent report of a school district in Pennsylvania has declared war on Christmas. A bus driver placed some Christmas decorations inside of his school bus that he drove, and one parent, just, just one parent, made a big stink about it, protested and complained to the school administrator, so the entire school district banned any mention of Christmas or any Christmas displays and took it a step further that they said there could be no other religious expression whatsoever. Why do we celebrate? We celebrate the birth of Jesus. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to take some time this morning to talk about the true meaning of of this celebration, and it is a celebration that we call Christmas. And I'd like to bring us to this passage, and maybe you've never considered it as part of something we would learn of on a, on a Christmas day or Christmas Eve. And that's in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. I'd like to read those verses to you. So if your Bibles are open there, please follow along. You know, that way you get to hear it and, and read it, and you get a double blessing. Verse 4 says, and when, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman and made under the law, to redeem that which were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In verse 4, we see a very, very important phrase. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. And this, of course, speaks of Jesus. And what this tells us is that Jesus wasn't born as, as a random event in human history, but that he was born into human history. And the Bible tells us that at just the right time, it means that his birth is part of a much, much larger plan. And when we look at the Christmas account, the, the Christmas stories in the scripture, we're reading a story whose timing is precise in part of God's grand design and God's grand plan. You see, God's plan didn't start at the birth of Jesus. It started a long time before Jesus was born. So if we have any hope of understanding this account or this story of the birth of Jesus, then we have to understand what happened at the very beginning. For example... Let's say Jackie and I decide we're going to watch a movie on television. So we sit down on the sofa, relax, bad place for me, relax on the sofa, <laughs> hit the play button, the movie begins, and before the introduction is even finished, I doze off and fall asleep. Well, I wake up perhaps an hour later, I look at the television, I have no idea what's taking place here. I picked up somewhere in the middle, so I'm about asking what's happening here. I turn to my wife and I say, honey, can you explain what's taking place up to this point in time so that I can understand exactly what I'm looking at right now and grasp, and grasp what's before me? I need to understand 
so I can un- understand what has taken place, so I can understand the present. As you might expect, that's not particularly well received. <laughs> Retracing the whole thing up until the point where, where I finally woke up. You know, similarly, no one would open up a book and start reading in the middle because of what was previously written is important to understanding where you are in the book. And so it is with the birth of Jesus. Some people come into church on Christmas Eve, and there's the account of the birth of Jesus in the Bible, and may have no idea what took place that led up to the birth of Jesus. So in order to understand this Christmas story, we need to understand what happened first, second, third, and so on. So let's go back in our Bibles to the very first book, the book of Genesis. You don't need to turn there. But in chapters 1 through 3, it records the creation of the world, which includes the creation of man. Man, as the Bible tells us, is created in the image and likeness of God. And God created man for a very specific purpose, and that is to have a relationship with him, to commune with God. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That's God's purpose for us. Well, in chapter 3, it tells us how Mankind, Adam and Eve, they sinned in this Garden of Eden. Eden, The Garden of Eden was a, a beautiful place, a perfect place. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no work. God said, just take care of things here, that's all. And he gave them one instruction. And you find this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat, mayest freely eat, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God says, if you disobey me, if you disobey this one command I gave you, then something's going to happen. He said, you'll surely die. He said, don't eat from that one tree. But what did they do? Well, they said, we're going to do it anyway. And that's sin, isn't it? When God prohibits something and we say, well, I'm going to do it anyway, that's sin. They disobeyed God, and that was the very first sin, and it's called the fall of man. And that fall of man had introduced spiritual death into humanity. It took the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God, which was a perfect relationship where they communed with one another in a garden, and it cut it off. Our sin separated us. Their sins separated them from God. And we, as part of God's creation, are all descendants of Adam and Eve, and everyone born since has that sin nature. Well, not only did that first sin establish the spiritual death, it also established a physical death. There's some people that don't believe in the Garden of Eden. There's some people that don't believe in Adam and Eve. Some, some people believe, well, that, that's simply a myth. It's simply a story. So the question, how can I know or how can we know that the Bible's record of Adam and Eve and the fall of man really happened and is true? Do you have proof? Well, yes, we do have proof. Proof is that I'm a descendant of Adam And that I'm fallen, separated from God. And there's single great evidence of that. And the proof that we are fallen and descendants of Adam and Eve is in one word, death. Before sin, there was no death. And certainly we understand, we agree that that people die every day. 
What's that a result of what took place way back in the creation account when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? And we've inherited that nature. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul the Apostle said, For as in Adam all die. He's very, very clear here, isn't he? He said two words, all die. And until Adam sinned, there was no such thing as death. But in Adam, as descendants of Adam and Eve, which we all are, all will die. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. And death reveals to each of us that, that we're tied to Adam, and therefore we are tied all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And death reveals the truth that each of us is tied together with Adam and Eve in the garden. So we can understand where death came from, and we understand now it's, yes, it has spiritual implications, but it also has physical explanations, explanation and implications. And all of us need to understand this in order to understand and appreciate the rest of the story from then on. And I'm so thankful, and I, I imagine you are too, that that God doesn't leave us in Genesis chapter 3. He didn't leave us in the darkness and in the hopelessness of separation from God and death. Well, what did God do? Well, God made a promise. He made a promise concerning Messiah, a Savior to provide for man a salvation from every single consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and our consequences of our own sin. God spoke these words in Genesis chapter 3. And he spoke to the serpent, the devil, that tempted Adam and Eve to sin, to doubt God, and to disobey God. Now understand now, God doesn't blame the serpent for Adam and Eve's sin. They made a choice, didn't they? As we make a choice to sin too, we can't blame anybody else for our sin. But God had a word for the serpent in these verses, and he paints a very, very beautiful picture way back in Genesis chapter 3 of the Messiah that he would send. And here's what he said in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise or crush your head, which means authority, and you shall bruise his heel. So what God is saying here is, you will do some damage to the Messiah, this one that is to come. That, of course, speaks of the crucifixion of Christ. But all that will accomplish is the crushing of your own head and your authority. And God said, this is important. Messiah will be born from the seed of a woman. He would be born without the seed of a man. In other words, born of a virgin. Way back in Genesis, God said this. He established it. And we know that the woman has no seed. The woman holds the egg. He would be the seed of a woman and not of man. So come from the woman, and we know that the Holy Spirit of God is the one that created this, this seed, this, this egg to grow. And we have a God-man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the prophet Isaiah had a word, too, from 
from God when he wrote this in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And I love that name. It means God with us. So God sent an angel to Mary that spoke to her as the fulfillment of the prophecy that we just read in Isaiah chapter 7. We find in Luke 1.31, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. So Jesus was born of a virgin. And by means of the virgin birth, Jesus had the human nature of his mother and also the sinless divine nature of his father. No seed of man. So all this leads us up to Christmas, the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And if we don't understand the beginning of the story, how God dealt with sin through the birth of Jesus, if we don't understand the beginning that I need a Savior because my sin is separated from me from God, and that God has promised me a Savior, then I'll have zero appreciation for the birth of that Jesus and for the provision of that Savior on Christmas morning over 2,000 years ago. We need to know the beginning so that we can understand the significance of the birth of Jesus. And without that, Christmas would be meaningless. What would we be left with? Well, we'd be left with exactly what we're seeing today in secular society. It would, we'd be left with just another holiday. Just another reason for a day off from work. A day when people exchange gifts just because. Just because that's what we do. And it's so prevalent these days. It's it's a day void of any spiritual substance, but rather a secular day without the acknowledgement or the knowledge of what is behind it all and the significance of it. But once we understand the meaning of Christmas and its background, we can go on to understand that God's plan goes well past the birth of Jesus. And we see this in the Gospels where we learn that that Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. And then he was crucified, just as God said would happen back in Genesis chapter 3, put to death on a cross in order to provide for us a completely satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And you know, family, the story doesn't end there either. And praise God, Jesus did not remain in the tomb. He rose from the dead on the third day just as he said that he would. And through his resurrection, he demonstrated his authority, authority over death, authority over hell, and that uniquely qualified him to provide man with everlasting life. So the only way for a person to have everlasting life, I'm talking about everlasting life in heaven with Jesus, is through the only one that has given us everlasting life, through his death, burial, and resurrection as a sacrifice. But you must believe in him and trust in him with your eternity. It just doesn't happen. He calls upon us to trust in in who he is and what he has done as payment for our sin debt. Now, it brings up some questions. For what purpose was Jesus born? For what purpose did he live? For what purpose did he die? And what was the purpose of his resurrection? And there's many, many reasons for that, but we want to look at just one today, what Paul described to us in verse 5 in Galatians chapter 4. 
And he said this, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. God did all of this. All of what? The birth, the death, the burial, and a resurrection of Jesus to redeem us. And the word redeem, it means to free someone upon payment of a ransom. In other words, we were under debt. And God provided a ransom, a payment. And Paul uses some very familiar imagery for the people at that time. The people at that time were under Roman authority. And the Romans, the Romans had many, many slaves. It's reported there was about six million slaves in the Roman Empire at that time. So it was very, very common. And in order for a person to have a slave, it had, the slave had to be purchased at a market. So, purchase, so picture the slaves being brought out by slave traders into a marketplace. The slave would stand on a platform surrounded by would-be buyers, and the auction would begin, and the slave would go to the highest bidder. That slave was then purchased by the owner. But imagine, and this is what Paul is bringing to us. A buyer goes through all the expense of purchasing a slave, then does something that no other slave trader would do. He purchased the slave for one purpose only, and that is to set him free. Purchased his freedom. And that's what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We were once slaves, well, not in, as, as we see uh, that took place in the Roman Empire, but slaves to something different, something more dangerous, something more deadly, and that is slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. We've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans 6, verse 20, for when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. So we served sin. We didn't serve God before we knew God, before we were born again. Slaves to our guilt, isn't that true? We become enslaved by our guilt. We become enslaved by our self-condemnation because of the things we do that mess up, that we've messed up. All that goes along with sin. But God has purchased us to free us from all that through the death of Jesus Christ and set us free from our former bondage and guilt. Now, Jesus made a promise in John chapter 8, verse 36. He said, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. And praise God Family, praise God for our freedom because of the birth of the Christ child and his sacrifice of his own life and his resurrection, all for us. And because of that, we have freedom from sin's power. Yes, we, we, I can sin all I want, but I don't want to sin. There was a day I didn't care for the most part. But I care now. Because Jesus has made me free from the bondage of sin, its power, but also its penalty. Well, isn't that interesting? Along with sin goes a penalty. And, you know, way back in the garden, God said, there will be be death, spiritual and physical death. Well, we're all going to die a physical death, but we don't have to die a spiritual death. Because Jesus has given us life through him. And you would expect that 
with every offense, there should be justice, right? You know, somebody breaks into your home and robs your home, and what do you say? Arrest him. I want justice. And God, God is perfect in justice. But praise God through Jesus Christ, the penalty that you and I, the penalties that we've accumulated for every single sin we have ever committed, past, present, and future, along with that carries a, ju- a death sentence. But what did God do? He sent his son Jesus to pay a price we could never pay. And what's he require of us? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and believe in him and trust him that what he has done on the cross, he did for you. Now, the second thing to note in verse 5, God isn't satisfied just to set us free from the penalty of sin, but from the power. And for me, that, that would be all I could ever hope for. Sin has no power over me. But God didn't stop there either. It tells us here that God adopted us into his family. We are adopted. And because we are adopted into God's family, we take the position of a son. Sonship. Jesus took our position on the cross at Calvary. He, he paid for our sins that we might take the position as sons of God. He adopted us, and we're not considered children of God until we have come to Christ Jesus by faith. Faith in Christ alone through his death, burial, and resurrection that's what makes us God's children. You know, there's a very common notion today, and it's a, a nice notion, but it's not a true one. And you've heard, well, we're, we're all God's children. Have you ever heard that? That's not what my Bible says. We're all God's creation. And praise God, I have a creator that loves me. And he loves me so much that he made a way for me to become his child. Apart from coming to Christ, we can't be part of God's family in his eternal kingdom. John 1.12 is very, very clear on that. It says, but as many as received him, him who? Jesus, received him into your heart, received forgiveness of sin. For as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We become his child, adopted into his family. And when we come to Christ and are saved, we're placed in an adopted state as heirs, as sons of God. And Paul uses an interesting phrase here, the adoption of sons. Not only were we freed or purchased from bondage, but made sons and daughters by adoption. And Paul's referring to the Roman custom of adoption. Adoptions, adopted sons are given equal privileges in the family, equal to that of blood heirs. There was no distinction between adopted children and blood children. And everything changes for that child upon this adoption. Their identity, their circumstances, their entire future is changed. And what was true about that, it's true for every single Christian. Everything changes. We were made members of God's family, 
Our identity changes. Yes, you have the same name, but your identity is different. You're now identified in and with Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul the Apostle said this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, in other words, belong to Christ, he is a new creature. And I'm not talking about America's makeover here. He says a new creature. He's not talking about putting a little bit of makeup on the blemish. No, a new creature old things have passed away. And then he used this beautiful word, behold. I love that word. In other words, take note, take, take a look at this. He said, behold, how much has become new? All. All things have become new. You have a new life, a new eternity, a new destiny, a new creation in Jesus Christ, and praise him for that. Our circumstances change because of our adoption. Doesn't mean that the life's difficulties don't, it doesn't mean they go away, no. But you know what? In Christ, he helps us through these things, through difficulties, through trials, and he uses those things to keep on changing us and to conform us more closely into the image of God. Well, think about this. You know, I I think I shared with you maybe a couple months ago one of the things I loved to do as a kid and I still love to do is skip stones. I'll go down to the lake shore and I'll pick up, I'll look and find a perfect one and, and I'm able to skip that stone on the water. But you know, the stones weren't always that way. I pick up what? A smooth stone, a flat stone where the edges are now rounded rather than sharp. And how did that happen? Did God make them just as flat, smooth, and rounded edges? No, no. Over a period of time, they get tumbled and and, and hit against other stones, and the sharp edges become smoothed out, don't they? That stone is changed. And the Bible calls us living stones. Isn't that beautiful? And as living stones, what does Jesus do? Well, he polishes us up, doesn't he? You know, picture, picture someone with a little chisel taking away the sharp edges, you know. And God uses circumstances in our life. He uses trials in our life. He uses difficulties in our life to cause to cry out to him, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. And help me. Help me turn away from the things I formerly turned to. And help me turn to you and trust you with everything that I have. We are changed. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And this speaks of the change that have taken place. But you are a chosen generation. In other words, God's got you. A royal priesthood. I, if you belong to Jesus, and, and I stand among royalty here. Because you have a king, and his name is Jesus. A holy nation, his own special people. You're special to God. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. What darkness is he talking about? He's talking about the darkness and bleakness and blackness of sin. He says, I've called you out of that. And he's brought it into his marvelous light. Jesus is the light of the world. And where light shines, darkness flees, doesn't it? This room is really, really dark with all the lights off. And it doesn't take much. I could turn my phone light on and I could... The darkness goes away. I can't see everything, but I can see a lot. On the other hand, here we are in a a well-lit room. Can can you darken this room through a little darkness you want to inject? It's not going to happen. Why? Because the light overcomes and overwhelms the darkness. 
He called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy in the past, but now we've obtained mercy. You know, that's a rags to riches story, isn't it? So you go from darkness to light, without mercy. Now we have mercy. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. We're now a royal priesthood. We're not just anybody. We are royalty because of what Christ has done. So our entire future has been changed because of our adoption. And God speaks of our future being so sure that one day we'll stand in the glory of heaven. And we can live today with the ironclad knowledge of our salvation. It's a promise from God. John said this in 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of who? The Son of God. I mean, he's talking about a heart belief here, not just something that goes and bounces around in our head. He's talking about a heart belief that you may know that you may have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Well, Merry Christmas, that we might know that we have eternal life. What a gift. And I've shared with you many times over many, many years in my life, sleepless nights wondering, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? How, why was there such a question mark? Because I didn't know the author and finisher of my faith. But now I know Jesus. I've been forgiven by Jesus. I've trusted in Jesus. And he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And he's gone ahead to prepare a place for me. And John says, you have to know. He goes, I don't want anybody guessing here. I want you to know. And we're going to talk about how you can know in a little bit. The third thing we find, we find in verse 6. It says, and because you are sons, now adopted sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, Jesus was born into this world. He lived the life he lived. He died on a cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead on the third day in order to bring us into a deeply personal relationship with God. Remember I said way back in Genesis, we are created for a relationship with God. Relationship was broken through sin. And guess what Jesus did? He reestablished the relationship with God the Father, us and God the Father, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And you realize God could have adopted us, and he could have put us off. He could have shunned us, isolated us from the rest of the family. But no, 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 he didn't do that. When we come to Christ through faith, his spirit comes to us and in us and brings us to the realization that, hey, I've got a father in heaven that loves me. God is my father. He adopted me to bring me into what is called an Abba relationship with him. And what a sweet and beautiful word that is. The word Abba. It's an Aramaic word that means daddy he's our daddy that's really sweet a perfect father jesus did what he did through his birth his death and resurrection in order to bring us into a daddy relationship with god and when i think of a daddy relationship with god it speaks of simplicity doesn't it he's my dad 
It speaks of intimacy. There's that closeness that a son can have with a father. And if not here on this earth, a heavenly father for sure. It speaks of innocence and the the beauty of a relationship with God that Jesus has made available to us. What an intimate and endearing name for our God. We get to call him dad. He's our dad, and we feel comfortable in doing so as his child. For those of you who are married, do you remember the first time you called your father-in-law dad? I remember the first time I called my father-in-law dad, and it was like, dad. Dad. And he was awesome. Shook my hand. And he loved me. And every time, from the very first time that I called him dad, it became easier and easier and easier. Why? Because I looked at him differently. Not as this man that was the father of my wife, but now he's my dad too. With our Heavenly Father, you know, there's really no warm-up period (laughs) like that. He's done such an incredible thing in bringing us salvation through Christ. And God, I realize that you sent your Son to die on a cross for me. So you must really love me. And because you really love me, I really love you. And I got no problem calling him Abba. I remember, we have four children. I remember our babies when one of the first words spoken was Dada. <laughs> it was awesome. It like sent me into orbit. This, this little baby, it's my child. And that little baby knows me and knows nobody else is Dada or Daddy. That baby knows me as Dad. So there's a, there's a bond that's established that's permanent and inseparable. My children will always be my children. I'll always be their dad. My Heavenly Father will always be my Heavenly Father. I'll always be His child. And yeah, in as much as our our children sometimes mess up, those of you who have kids, do your kids ever mess up or is it just ours? There's some young ones here, yeah. um, (laughs) Right? We all mess up. But does our Heavenly Father disown us? No. (laughs) Because there's that intimacy, there's that relationship, just the same as when my kids mess up, I don't know, you're done. No. You're my child. And I love you. No matter how young or how old, they'll always be my child and I'll always be their dad. And they don't call me Dada anymore or Daddy, and that's okay. They call me Dad or Pops. I'm okay with that because, you know, we have a security in our relationship. You don't have to call me Dada. That's kind of (laughs) weird. And the relationship is, is permanent. And that's what Paul the Apostle is talking about here. We're his children. We're God's children. He is our Abba Father, and we have an Abba relationship with God. 
that is beautiful and it's permanent and it's intimate. And family, this is what Christmas is all about. You know, God recognized that our, our sin has separated us from him and it grieved God. You know, just as when, when our kids mess up somehow, it grieves us, it hurts. And our sin that separated us from God, it grieved him. And God could have very easily said, no, I'm done. Adam, Eve, I gave you a chance in a garden, you messed up. Good riddance. And he could have said that with me thousand times over but God didn't give up he did something about the sin of man he sent his only begotten son at just the right time just the right time the fullness of time and because of that we celebrate Christmas Jesus Christ, the Messiah, born of a woman to free us as slaves to sin and brought us into a relationship with our Father in heaven, a father-son or father-daughter relationship through his birth, death, and resurrection. And he adopted us into his family with all the rights and privileges as blood heirs dwelling, this is so beautiful, and here's our privilege, dwelling in the exact same place as God Almighty. And we can call him Abba. We should call him Abba. We can call him Dad. We can call him Daddy because he is a wonderful, wonderful Father that loves us. You know, Jesus said this, I'll close with these verses in John chapter 14, talking about the privileges of, of being an heir or an adopted child into the family of God. He said this in John 14, in my father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. He would say, welcome home. I've gone ahead to prepare a place for you as my child. Well, it brings me to a question, a very important question. How do I then become a child of God? Remember I mentioned we're all God's creation, but not all his children. Well, how do I become his child? Well, most importantly is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who paid a price. Remember I talked about perfect justice. Jesus paid the price that you and I ought to be paying for our sin. The righteous judgment of God didn't come my way. Eternal separation from God didn't come my way because Jesus has gone ahead through his death, burial, and resurrection to pay that price for perfect justice. And what that means to us is simply to come before him. Come before their Father in heaven and admit that you're a sinner. He already knows about it. You can't fool him. He already knows about it. He just says, just be humble. Come to me and admit who you are and what you've done. And recognize and realize and believe with all your heart that I sent my son Jesus Christ, 
my only begotten son. And I can't imagine sending one of my children to die on behalf of others. But God did. Why? Because he loves us. He's saying, place your trust in Jesus Christ, my only begotten son, who went to the cross to pay a price you could never pay and ask him to forgive you. And what will God do? He'll forgive you. The Bible says this, if you confess your sin, that's our responsibility, confess our sin. And here's his. He is faithful and just to forgive us from all of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive. Clean slate, set free from the bondage of sin and the bondage of death for whom the Son shall make free is free indeed. So, if you have not yet entered into that father-son relationship, through Jesus Christ, would you pray with me now? And you could leave here today and say these words boldly and clearly and with great confidence, I am a child of God. Not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads together and pray. For those of you that do know the Lord Jesus and you're saved, then just pray that someone would receive Christ today, be it here in this building or later online. It's important that those decisions are made and made right now. So I come to you, Father, and in a moment I want to be able to call you Abba. I thank you for loving me and caring so deeply for my eternity. And I do believe that you sent your only begotten son born 2,000 years ago as a baby who lived a perfect life and step by step led him closer to that place where he would lay his life down on a cross in Calvary and die in my place. I thank you for paying a price I could never, ever pay. I thank you, Father, that you love me enough to save me. And I believe you, that you came, you sent your son Jesus in order that I could be saved. I confess my sin to you now, and I ask you, God, in your mercy, please forgive me. Cleanse me from all of my sin. Free me from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death, from the guilt and condemnation that I've experienced. And help me to live a new life, a resurrected life, right now at this moment. And I come to you, Father, Abba, Daddy, in the name of Jesus, your Son, who did what I could never do. And I thank you for saving me, and I thank you for loving me. And help me. You tell me I'm a new creature. Help me to live as one. Help me to walk away from the things that are harmful and to to embrace all that's good. And Jesus, you are good. And I thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas, everybody.